This is the Hockey News Storytellers Podcast with Ian Paul. Welcome to the Hockey News Storytellers Podcast number six. When you turn on the game, you immediately turn your attention to the end product as the players and the coaches set to battle. But have you ever paused to wonder about all the players off the ice that help power the machine that produces the game? Who are these players and where did they come from? And what are their respective stories? And what about the players who played the game and went on to have successful post-playing careers? The Hockey News Storytellers will bring you the journeys will bring you the journeys of these and many other contributors to the world of hockey. Listeners will learn about the challenges, successes and constant grind of these players and the lessons that they have learned along their journeys. Today's guest is Ken Baumgartner. I've known Ken for 30 plus years. Ken played 14 professional seasons, 696 games in the NHL, and 51 playoff games. Ken was a high-energy player who protected his teammates. During his career, he amassed over 2,000 minutes in the penalty box. He was a leader, a heart and soul player on the ice, and a thoughtful, intelligent leader off the ice. He credits Hall of Fame coaches Al Arbor and Pat Burns and junior coach Terry Simpson for giving him guidance, direction during his playing career. Ken transitioned out of the game to a successful business career. Ken's story needs to be heard by every future and current player. Players should take heed and learn how a player set goals on and off the ice to forge a successful playing career and post-playing career. Ken's pursuit of education during his career and post-career needs to be known. The lessons he has and advice for all current and future players. From his home in Flin Flon, Manitoba, to his junior home in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, to his minor league stay, to stops in Los Angeles, New York Islanders, Toronto Maple Leafs, Anaheim Ducks, and finally the Boston Bruins. Learn how Ken Baumgartner earned his Bachelor of Arts degree that propelled him to the number one ranked business school in the perhaps the world, Harvard University, where he earned his Master's of Business Administration. Perseverance, dedication, using his time wisely, building a network, Having balance, these are the lessons that emanate from Ken Baumgartner. With his first interview in perhaps over 15 years, Ken Baumgartner, welcome to the podcast today. Well, thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure to be here. And when we spoke a couple months ago, uh, I was very excited. So I've spent some time thinking about this and look forward to it. Well, let's get right into it. And... You know, let's let's take you back right to Harvard Business School, circa 2000, and you're take us right to your class. And what were you thinking? Like, you're in a new setting, new envir- environment at Harvard. It's the year 2000. You finished your career, and you're sitting in class. Like, you went from Prince Albert, like I said, through the NHL to Harvard. What were your thoughts there? Well, it certainly was a journey to get there, and we will touch on some of that. Uh, and it was a very different environment. I was used to a predominantly male, Caucasian, Canadian locker room, and here I am in a classroom of you know, diversity, uh, international, uh, all sorts of different backgrounds. Uh, maybe not the only one from sports, but there were few you know, Navy SEALs, investment bankers, consultants, and it was actually quite intimidating. And many of them were really good at their craft. I remember learning Excel uh, just to get up to speed to have a fighting chance. So uh, I remember sitting there a few times wondering, how did I find my way there? Uh, but, you know, as, as 
sharp as it seemed on the outside, it was quite welcoming once you were there. And so like some of the guys, you mentioned Navy SEALs, they came out of the Navy and whatever their experiences were and kind of probably, uh, you know, graduated from the Navy, like you graduated from the NHL and are sitting around in the same room as you. And um, I'm sure you heard some great stories and, you know, you weren't that battle weary, but um, you can never compare hockey to uh, what those guys do. But you probably identified a little bit with those guys. I, I think that's a fair point. Obviously, uh, you know, it was far less dangerous doing what I did. Um, but they were going through a transition. There were a lot of people from nonprofits there. And, and I, like many classrooms, you brought in people from different walks of life so we could learn off each other. You know, they were, you know, focused on teamwork, leadership, and the school's charter was to educate the next generation of business leaders. So, so there were some things in my background that they found desirable. And, you know, I became the go-to person on some of these leadership examples. Right. And uh, did you ever feel like in the early going, you know, I think this, the movie I recall, The Paper Chase, you know, was filmed at Harvard. I don't know if it was in the law school. I think it was in law school. But, you know, that case study work in Harvard Business School, like, did you ever feel overwhelmed? And like, how did you, were you prepared? Because I'm sure, you know, I, I remember you lacing up your skates from being in the press box to Ken, uh, to Pop Burns tapping you on the shoulder in Toronto saying, Bomber, you're in for a Leaf playoff game. And was there a similar, you know, similarities? I was far more prepared for that tap on the shoulder. You know, <laughs> you had prepared your whole life for something like this. It was, it was different and it was hard. And those first few months I remember were, you know, almost overwhelming, just trying to catch up to some people who had been in, we'll call it a more normalized work environment or closer to a traditional educational background. Um, I was also one of the older people, so I had a family. And so the, my dynamics were a little different than the average 26 year old who was only responsible for themselves. When the listeners hear in a couple minutes about how you did your education in, in a non-traditional way, but a, a pretty incredible way, uh, they'll kind of click in like you weren't the same as the student who just did their undergraduate work at Duke and then ended up at Harvard Law School, uh, Business School. So they'll, they'll, they'll catch on. Uh, one quick question before we depart Harvard for a minute and take everybody back to your roots is, did you ever lace up the blades at Harvard and skate with the business students for, you know, the fun or for whatever reason? There was a team, the HBS Blades. Uh, I was more than welcome there. I will find that a 26-year-old with fresh legs out of undergrad was probably a better player to have than a 35-year-old with tired legs. Uh, we did play in a couple tournaments, and I remember that you know, we won the Tuck Championship tournament, so that was probably the highlight of my career. I did also enjoy playing defense then. You know, after being you, shuffled you, around, you know, allowed me to go back to my original position. And and you probably were a skilled soft hand defenseman at the time when you were in business school. <laughs> but did some of that, like, some, I bet you it was also good to network with those people away from the school and whatnot. Yeah, it certainly was. And, and I do think that the advantage of many of these educations is the network that you develop. Uh, because that has been important and it continues to be important. Um, a lot of friends from my days at school that I bounce ideas off of. Uh, but that network doesn't have to wait till you're at grad school. We'll talk on that a little right. bit. The theme of, you know, while you have the, um, while you have the ability to meet people as a pro athlete, you know, I would suggest that's something you should. Right, for sure. So let's go back to. Um, your birthplace, Flin Flon, Manitoba, where you grew up, um, you know, and you were uh, playing some hockey, you were going to school. Uh, what was it like in the 70s? What were your goals and aspirations at the time when you were playing? And, um, you know, tell us a little bit about, about you know, your background um, in Flin Flon.
Did you did you hear the question? Yeah, I did. Sorry, the, the phone was ringing in the background. Okay. Um, you know, we're talking about uh, your your background in Flin Flon, growing up in Flin Flon, and you know what your goals and aspirations were. You know, leaving junior high school, going into high school. Like, were you a good student? And what was your hockey like? Yeah, uh, I was playing in a four-team Northern Manitoba Tier Two Junior League. Uh, not highly scouted at the time. My grades were were actually quite strong. I enjoyed school. I enjoyed math and sciences, um, and you know I was you know, naturally curious. Uh, but the hockey level was not one that was going to find myself likely to you know playing professional or, or college. Um, I was actually interested in getting a U.S. college scholarship, um, but you know not a lot of not a lot of bites. Uh, and had tried out for Canadian Junior in the WHL a couple times. Um, got a similar message both times. We liked your style of play. You can't skate. You'll never play in the league. Right. Um, you know, I was a, I was a tough kid that didn't back down, but uh, had not evolved as a, a full player at that point. And so you 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 start creeping along. And did you ever think about how did well what triggered going to the Western League and to Prince Albert, um, leaving Flin Flon. Now I will add one thing I've known Ken a long, long time. And it wasn't until I started to prepare for this podcast that the lights went off. And I sort of connected the fact that even though his name's Ken Baumgartner, B-A-U-M-G-A-R-T-N-E-R, I always thought his nickname through the NHL was Bomber from his name, but you know, I guess, you know, I had to connect uh, one plus one and it added up to three. And I figured out that he was a native of the Flynn Flon Bombers, B-O-M-B-E-R-S. And that's kind of how he played. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and, the, and the nicknames, the nickname followed me uh, for the rest of my career. Right. Um, you know, I had pretty well come to the determination. I was not going to play hockey at the college level. And I was going to go be an accountant. I was ready to sign up for University of Manitoba or University of Saskatchewan and getting ready to apply for that. And my life took a twist in October of my senior year when a gentleman, Milt Fisher, he was a scout for the Prince Albert Raiders, a uh, city about four hours from my hometown, just happened to be in town for work. Uh, he saw the game. I think I had a Gordy Howe and some big hits that night. And he tracked down my dad and said, would Ken like to come for a weekend tryout? Um, you know, my original reaction was been there, done that. This isn't going anywhere. But a friend of mine on the team, Lyle Ham, had been from Prince Albert. He understood the strength of that franchise, the success they had as a tier two and knew in the tier one league kind of what Terry Simpson uh, was looking to create. So he encouraged me to go and, you know, I found my way down there for a tryout. Uh, I was arguably the worst player in the league when I arrived, but willing to stick up for my teammates and had a few opportunities that weekend against Saskatoon and Regina to, to do so. Who was on Saskatoon or Regina that you recall? Well, I think we had Joey Kosher was Saskatoon and Stu Grimson was Regina. So those are people I followed for many years after that. So welcome to the Western Hockey League, Stu Grimson and Joey Kosher. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure they're good memories. That's for sure. So you, you go in there and like you acknowledge, maybe not the best player at the beginning, but by the time Prince Albert was, was said and done, with coaching with Terry Simpson, you got a Memorial Cup championship um, under your belt. You had a coach that believed in you. And most importantly, you stuck with, with it. And how did you evolve as a player? Well, I would say just being around better players forces you to improve your game because if you don't, you won't last long. So I think, you know, if you had a appropriate work ethic or coachable and had people providing direction, there's always the opportunity to improve. So I took advantage of that. And, you know, by the end of it, you know, I was the defenseman on the ice in a close game, making sure that, um, you know, instead of, instead of making sure nothing tough happened, making sure that the other team didn't score a goal against you. So I evolved into a, a more well-rounded player 
uh, well, you know, making sure I continue to stick up for my teammates, you know, a part of my game that I guess never really left. So two quick points on that. One is, and this may be 20 years ago, I remember asking you, um, who was the best player that you played with that never made the NHL? And I think your answer was uh, Manny Viveros. Um, and lo and behold, he uh, just landed a, a, a job with the Silver Knights of Las Vegas as their head coach in their inaugural year. And, you know, maybe he will end up making it to the NHL as a head coach one day. Yeah, he was my defense partner for a couple of years in, in junior and went on to have a career in Europe. And, um, you know, and I, and I think the game at the time was, you know, you were looking more for a, a defenseman like Dave Manson than, than Nanny Viveros at the time in the draft. So when you were in junior, you were there for three years, is my recollection? PA? Three years. Three years. Um, how important was school? And like, did you ever think about giving up school because now you're a junior hockey player and of course you're gonna go play in the NHL, no, no doubt, like most junior players dream of, but you know, how important was school then? And what was your kind of mantra when it came to playing junior hockey and school and how important was the school part of it? Yeah, well, they made it easy, certainly at high school to finish, you know, the school and the rank were, Right beside each other, I think one of the board directors was the principal of the school, and you know they knew if you weren't showing up. And I think the, the year we we you know, went to the finals, you know, I think I only missed eight or nine days. So they certainly worked around you. You just did your homework on the bus, and you created discipline around it. Uh, I continued to take classes uh, in the off seasons at University of Saskatchewan after I graduated, or you know when I could during the season in the evenings. Um, because I saw this hockey as a fun diversion. I was still going to go be an accountant. And, you know, the NHL seemed so far away. And in spite of the Memorial, Memorial Cup and the 12th round draft pick, you know, it probably wasn't until a bunch of us were sitting around with, with the coach in his office. And he said something to the extent of Bomber would play in the NHL someday. And, and I think that was the first point that really clicked in that I might actually have a chance. So then I took this approach, well, if I get there, it might only be for a cup of tea. So let's get as much education I can now because I, that one fewer years I'll have to go back, you know, when this is over. Well, and so today, you know, I know that you have daughters that are, have graduated from university already, but in today's day and age, and that's why I refer to it, like if you're a junior player with technology as it is and being on the buses and having your laptops and whatnot, like it, it, it's gotta be easier to be able to chip off your high school and start a couple university courses, um, you know, than it was back then. And for me, who's involved with young, you know, aspiring professional athletes, junior players, they gotta, I can't emphasize enough to follow you know, Kenny's mantra of, you know, how long is it going to be and get your schoolwork done? You yeah, know, and so. I, I think that some of it was my framework. My father was a geologist, my mother registered nurse. I think there was always an expectation I would go to college. So that was a good starting point to have. And then it really came down to, you know, setting goals for yourself, having some discipline and some time management, because to your point, there's plenty of downtime. And, you know, there, there's no excuse in my mind that hockey has to be so all-encompassing that you can't do anything else. Because I do think that you can, and I do think that you may end up being a better hockey player because of that. Right. And, and not everybody can drive F1 racing online like our producer, Steve Ellis. So, you know, you better get your education. Um, so... You, you end up getting drafted um, by the Buffalo Sabres in the 12th round of the NHL draft. Um, you never become a Sabre. I understand that you spent uh, part of a year or a year in Switzerland with your brother playing. Um, I think that there's some Swiss roots in your, in your um, family and that made it easier to get over there. And then you eventually got traded to uh, the Los Angeles King organization 
and you skip over Buffalo and you end up in New Haven with the likes of Mike Donnelly and um, a couple other players. And then you end up in LA. What was that like getting to LA, you know, playing on the same team as Wayne Gretzky? Um, tell us a little about, about your LA experience and AHL experience and um, what it was like. Yeah, well, I must say, you know, just being in New Haven in, in the AHL was actually quite exciting being back in, in North America, playing a North American style of play. Um, and it was actually Robbie Petoric who was the coach. He ended up getting the NHL coaching job midseason, and he had a series of two-game tryouts for about a dozen of us in, in New Haven, and it gave us a taste. And, and you know, I came up, played a couple games, and he sent me down as planned. There were some on the LA Kings who quickly went to Robbie. I actually didn't mind having him around. Uh, this was pre-Gretzky days, and there were some that felt, you know, Ken's presence, you know, gave me a little more space. So I found myself back up before the end of the year. I was I was playing defense. I was so excited to be there and to be in the NHL and arguably playing some of the best hockey uh, of my career. Um, you know, then things changed dramatically that summer when you know Wayne was traded uh, and Bruce had taken over Bruce McDonald the team and and it was a really incredible ride to see that team go from um, you know some. Some sellouts on the odd night, Saturday night, and an up-and-coming team with Luke Robitaille, Steve Duchesne, Johnny Car or uh, 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 not Johnny Carson. Yeah, Johnny was there before. Jimmy Carson. Jimmy Carson. Thank you. Oh, he got uh, or was Carson there, and then he got traded for. Well, Gretz. he was there before. I played thirty games in the old right. and gold, and then you know Wayne came to town with Marty and, and Curry and Duguay and Barry Beck. And I, and I remember finally going into Calgary as part of the starting lineup and Wayne would take the face off. He would have Marty or um, he would have Marty on one wing, Jay Miller on the other, <laughs> myself and Barry Beck. And that's the year I had 285 minutes in penalties, but finished third because Marty and Jay were well into the 300s. But in my defense, I only played 45 games. Just to give you a sense, it was a very different game back then. Well, but did many players take runs at Wayne, like some of the cheap shots that are going on against the stars of today that we just saw this past weekend? Uh, there was very little of that in, in the day. And, and I do think I played in an era where um, you had expansion, you had a dilution of the talent pool and there were only so many people from Eastern Europe that could come over. And what you had was a lot of expansion teams not quite getting the same cast of players that Las Vegas did and they were going to lose. So teams made the decision, well, if we're going to lose, let's at least not get run out of our own room, so that our own building. So there was an arms race that was going on and rough and tumble, the six defensemen, fourth line left wingers like myself, you could actually earn a good living for a prolonged period. And it was 150 new jobs that came during my era. Right. Well, you know, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that those, those, if we had, a, we, if we had hours and hours, we could get do a deep dive into some of those games uh, and your junior career, but, um, you know, let's stay on track here. So you live the LA experience, um, sort of the, birth really the rebirth of hockey in in california uh gretzky's arrival you become tight with marty mcsorley and we'll talk about that in a minute because uh of the role you and marty played with the nhl players association you know in the years down the road but um how like how did you stay on on the straight and narrow balancing your education in LA, like, did you ever get to LA and say, you know what, who needs this education? I'm with Gretz and I'm going to sail for the next 15 years. Life's good. And then what? I do think there was some of that. And I will say that education probably wasn't my priority back then, although I did still take classes every summer. Um, but things quickly came into light. I believe it was November uh, 29th, 19. 89, and I was traded with Hubie McDonough uh, for Miko Makla uh, to the New York Islanders. And I think the reality of, you know, 
thinking I'd stay in LA forever because the owner and Gretz liked me, that quickly changed. Um, fortunately, we went on to have a run of something like 23, three and three and went from last place to first place in the division and ended up making the playoffs. So it made that transition away from LA um, really powerful into a locker room I felt immediately accepted in. Uh, and a coach, Al Arbor, who ended up being quite insightful. It was not that first year, but the next year playing under him, um, you know, Sergei Fedorov um, taught me a lesson a few times about being too aggressive in the corner and the puck was in the net both times. So then, you know, the next day in practice, I have a gray jersey, which is fourth line uh, after playing defense my whole career. Um, and I think Al had this view that the game was changing and he was right. And that for me to stay relevant, I was going to have to recreate myself in a different position. Wait, so uh, just so the listeners and, and I, you know, from my own edification, you get traded from L.A. to the Islanders and the team then goes on a 23-3 and whatever run to make the playoffs, whatever it was, like that must have been a hell of a ride. That, that was very exciting, very exciting. Right. Um, you know, Hubie and I went from uh, part-time, you know, players in Los Angeles to kind of immediate having impact. Uh, when we arrived. So that was, that was a real thrill and kind of one of the highlights of my playing career looking back. So the Hall of Fame coach, Al, I think his nickname was Radar, wasn't it? Radar, didn't they call him Radar? So no idea why. Maybe Right, well, but maybe you got on his radar and he switched you from D to forward. So maybe you had that uncanny sense of, you know, sensing what was good for people on and through his radar and um, put you uh, moved you to forward, which you said probably added how many extra years to your career? Maybe oh, 10? Maybe seven because okay. the way the game was changing, it's not clear I would have lasted that much longer up front or on the back. Uh, I did have opportunities because of injury to play defense at certain points in my career, a little in Anaheim, a little in Boston and thoroughly enjoyed them. But um you know, that, and my initial reaction was, you know, I wasn't happy, but I, after a while I thought about this and, and, and a, you know, another life lesson, sometimes you just have to deal with the hand that is given you. It's not always going to be what your master plan was. I, I went to business school with the expectation that, you know, I was going to be a general manager of an NHL team someday. I took a very different path, but it doesn't mean that the experience wasn't that fulfilling. So what's your advice to the center iceman coming out of junior and, you know, he gets to his first camp and the, the, the coach says, we love you, but we want you to play right wing or, you know, that offensive dynamic puck uh, carrying defenseman gets to the NHL or the AHL and they say, son, you're not running the power play. You got great feet. We think you can convert into a great two-way D-man, shutdown guy. What's your advice to them, you know, in terms of um, adapting yeah. to I think I think on that point, Ian, it's important to keep an open mind and be flexible. Always be working on your weaknesses. Um, you know, there may come a point in time that you need a different scenario and it just isn't working. I really struggled to play my off wing. You know, I was pretty clear. I... I have a hard time doing this. So if you want any success out of me, you better keep me on the left side. So maybe having that type of conversation if you feel way out of the way. But, but there's always injuries. There's always chances. Lineups change. Teammates change. And if you can play multiple positions, you become that much more valuable to a team over the long run. So we have the change in position, Al Arbor. We have the expansion era. We have the um, role of the, the protector. Um, fighting isn't going anywhere in the game. You know, it's still there to police the game. Uh, there's the instigator rule, which had some, you know, um, talk during the years. And so you're all set in, on the island now. Things are going. And so you have that wake-up call of life from – LA, LA, Hollywood, Manhattan Beach, and all of a sudden you find yourself squarely planted 
in the parking lot of the Nassau Coliseum in Union, Uniondale, New York Islanders, and you say, what just happened to me? And tell us a little bit about what happened with your schooling. Yeah, so I ended up, that was the summer I ended up getting married. Um, you know, and it, it was the beginning of a sense of stability in the family outside of what was always an unstable career. When I, when I look back at it, athletes often get married relatively early, certainly versus some of the peers I see at work. And when my kids got to school, I tended to be on the younger side of the parents. Uh, and, and looking back, I think a lot of that was, was a desire to create something stable outside of an unstable uh, environment with, with sports and this idea, idea of you could be traded at any point in time. School also provided one of those anchors for me. And I was fortunate, uh, there was a consortium of schools and in the summer of 1990, I ran into a gentleman, Harry Curtis. He was at Hofstra University. He was the Dean of Graduate and Part-Time Undergraduate Studies back then. And he was just a wonderful man, an old football coach and, and we hit it off and he got what I wanted to do. And he went out of his way to make sure that, and, and soon after that, I was up in Toronto that, you know, I ended up getting the syllabuses and curriculums and what the class schedule would be for every summer. Uh, and, you know, if a class was overbooked, we'd find a seat in it. And I had to do all the work, but, but I, I do think that meeting people like that along the way, you may not know it at the time, you know, in some respects, very gift that's been given to you by the fates to help kind of proceed on a path that you might not do if it was a lot rockier. So, so I ended up spending the next nine calendar years picking up my last three academic years. Uh, I finished high school in 84. I graduated my undergrad in 98. I'd never gone a year without taking a class. Some of those classes, some of those years I was taking half a college year in the summer. So it was, it was grueling at times, but it provided structure. Um, you know, so I would get up, I'd go to school, I'd train, I'd come home, I'd see the kids, I'd have dinner, and then I'd do my homework. And it wasn't fun and there was sacrifice involved, but I don't think it, I don't think it degraded my opportunity as a hockey player. And I would argue that my longevity as a player was in part because I was doing something else. You know, if I was watching old hockey fights all summer long, I'm not clear that would have benefited me. So in summary, four years of college took 14 years of part-time summer work, summer school work, commitment, discipline. And, you know, going back to this Harry Curtis, um, who was a key figure in the drive to your education because you were a hockey player would it be safe to say that while you're playing you sort of get connected to people and you should take advantage of that because when it's over it's a little bit harder i think to find the harry curtises of the world and what may be a menu that's available to you know, a player who may want to be a carpenter, or a plumber, a doctor, a firefighter, whatever it may be, well, they're in the, you know, junior to pro, AHL, um, NHL. Talk to us a little bit about that to shed some yeah. light and advice. Yeah, I would say you sometimes have to get out of your comfort zone and meet new people that might be different than yourself. I think business school taught me that, that there's this whole world out there outside of sports that is, is really interesting. Um, and there's some really dynamic, interesting people outside of that. And I think as an athlete, it's very easy to stay behind a gate and surround yourself with like-minded people and, you know, people that are, you know, close to you. Um, you know, let your guard down sometimes would be my advice. And because your, your collateral is never stronger than when you play. And there are a lot of retired hockey players out there. And I will say the programs have increased in, you know, what the Players Association and the alumni and the team alumni are doing has come a long way. But, but you really have access to so many great resources while you're playing. You know, be curious. You know, go to museums when you're on the road. Read books. 
you know, learn a craft, you know, for me, it was school. It might not be school for everyone. Yeah. And, and, you know, that could segue a little bit in, in, in for current players, especially, you know, whether it's at the American league level, the NHL level, getting involved in their um, unions and players associations, uh, the PHPA or the NHLPA. I mean, that's where we met in, in, in the early nineties, um, you, along with Marty McSorley, I would say were the pillars, the rock, the rocks of leading the rank and file membership in kind of um, fighting for and protecting and advancing rights and, you know, educating the stars. I know you played with Wayne and Marty played with Wayne. Sometimes I don't think that, you know, Marty and guys like you and others got the respect back well not the, the recognition that you guys put in hours and hours in the 92 strike and the 94 lockout you know but your involvement in the nhlpa i believe probably opened your eyes to all these different jobs in the in the business world um and legal world T talk to us yeah. a little bit about that so my first involvement was the summer 88 in florida and, and that was my first indication that something seemed wrong under the Eagleson regime. And, and I was interested enough to wanting to get involved. Uh, I also was always passionate about the business side of sports. It's something I continue to follow uh, today. And, you know, you know it's, it's something I remember when I was playing in Toronto, I would go down to the Player Association in the afternoon and, and hang out and just see what was going on on the, the business side of the world. Um, you know, I was fortunate to be involved in the Player Association at a point in time where we were really finding our own way and growing. And I had read, I believe it was uh, Miller's book, A Whole Different Ball Game. And yep. we were trying to make some of the gains in hockey that baseball had done 20 years ago. You know, salary arbitration, salary disclosure, independent arbitration, just things that seemed kind of, you know, fair to both sides. And um, and because the system, in my view, was a little one-sided back then. Uh, so I was fortunate to be on the collective bargaining for a number of different uh, of the, these, these sessions and years um, on our licensing committee, end up a vice president. And, you know, I really had an interest in the business side. And, and I envisioned staying in sports kind of on the business side back then. And, you know, I was hanging around a lot of lawyers with the league and the player association and in the front office, and I will say a couple of things. One, um, you know, it made me thought about law school. Uh, that evolved over time uh, to to an MBA, which fortunately was one year shorter. Um, but two, I think it earned a respect from both peers and those on the business side and front office that I might not have have realized had they only watched me play the game because there wasn't many respects a disconnect between what I did on the ice and who I was off the ice. And I do think this was a way to sort of express that there's more to me than just what you see with the skates on. Right. And, and, and a point well said, and, you know, we'll talk about it in a second, you know, probably the respect that you garnered, um, you know, was realized in full when you played out your final years of, of your career and for the Boston Bruins. Um, and when Harry Sinden was still there and, you know, um, playing for the Jacobs family and we'll get to Pop Burns in a second, but, you know, the, the last point on the, the players association involvement is, is that, you know, there were a lot of players back in the day that were heavily involved that, weren't necessarily as uh, invested in going to school as you were, but they got educated in their own way. And some of them ended up working in management. Um, others worked, got jobs outside of the game as well, but they used their involvement in the associations to um, get educated, get informed, learn the business. And it helps post-career if you're involved. And, and I think that you're, you're a shining example of that. Well, well thanks Ian. And one thing, you know, it, it, you can agree to disagree on many issues, but it doesn't have to be adversarial. And I think that was one of my learnings in just being around that process. No doubt. So let's talk a little bit. You come to Toronto, 
uh, you leave the island, you go to come to Toronto, and you had some great years in Toronto, um, loved by the fans. Um, but I think that you um, were able to um, be loved by a coach who I know you love too, and that's the Hall of Famer, great Pat Burns. Um, may you rest in peace. And, you know, every time I hear meatloaf, um, you know, uh, bat out of hell, I think of Pat, great album. But uh, tell us a little bit about Pat and your relationship with him. Yeah, well, I will say it did not start uh, the way it ended because I was penciled in to be platooned and Mike Foligno would play the home games and I would play the road games or if the team was really big and strong and tough and uh, I was in there for a little extra, a little extra weight. Um, and I think it was probably a game in St. Louis on the road where we had a, a meeting of the mind and a conversation after the game. It was like, you know, Pat, I'll go over the wall for you and do what I need to do. But you, you have to keep me, you know, part of the team. This in and out, I'm just not feeling like I contribute. And from that point on, you know, we we really saw eye to eye. And, you know, I did what I need to do for the team. And, you know, Pat, you know, most part gave me a regular shift. It wasn't always a lot of ice time, but I was ready when my time came. And, and knowing that the role was so appreciated, you know, those were really exciting years in Toronto to be to be on those teams and, you know, have the success that we did. And, you know, the big regret there is we never did get to the Stanley Cup. You know, a little known fact that sometimes gets forgotten on Pat, he was coach of the year three times. All three were original six teams, Montreal, Toronto, and Boston. And all three times was his first year with the team. So he was a real turnaround expert who got people's attention and, and one of the things he did was create this sense of accountability there's been a lot has been said over the years about belichick and the patriots locker room and this do your job it was a very similar mentality where you know people knew that there were expectations and if, if they did not meet those expectations they weren't getting ice time and was he a yeller or was he just a man of stature, like a bear that would walk in and the players knew and respected? Or would he like blow a gasket and strike fear into everybody? Like, what was he like in the locker room? I would say there was a combination. Um, there was, there was the odd cooler thrown around the room, but I think he, I think he realized over time that with the evolution of the player, that that impact lessened and lessened with time. And I think I think by the time he got to New Jersey and did win a cup, you know, I do think that um, he was far more respected than feared. Yeah, and you know, quite a legend. Um, so you 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 go, you have your time in Toronto, then. You go into Anaheim, play with Paul Correa um, and others in Anaheim, have a good experience back out in California. Then you end up in Boston for your last two years and with Pat, and then you end up um, coaching with Pat. What was that like? So I was, I was in the midst of – I had one year left in my contract. I'd finished my undergrad. I was – I decided I wanted to pursue an MBA and I was writing my, my GMATs that summer and a, a letter arrived that uh, we regret to inform you that your services are no longer needed. You know, I got bought out of the last year of my contract and it took me a few days to realize that this is actually a really good thing because it's going to give me some time to transition. And I was struggling with you know, the way I played the game and raising two young daughters and just trying to reconcile who I was on and off the ice. So, so within a few days, I decided this is good. I am done. And it was September 1st that Pat called me and asked, you know, do you want to coach? And I thought about it for a day and I was, you know, as a laborer, I'd be coming back as middle management with the hope of someday having a GM job. And that's in many respects, how I wrote my essays to get into business school. Um, and, and, I thought this would progress well and I coach for the year and go to school and I spend the afternoons winning or in the afternoons, I would be upstairs learning uh, the front office role. And it was probably six weeks in where uh, 
Pat and management were having differences on how to use Joe Thornton and Sergey Samsonov, our star rookies that year. Uh, and it quickly dawned on me that, you know, my allegiances were with Pat. And if I was to be spending time in the front office with those that were on the other side of the disagreement, it probably wouldn't be going over very well in the locker room. So, so I never did follow that path to, to learning the front office. And I do think as the year went by, coaching, it gave me a really great exit. And I think on a couple fronts, one, I realized that, um, you know, th there was nothing left on the table. You know, I had left at the right time and my playing days were behind me. And two, that I started to realize there were more things in life that were interesting that I might want to pursue uh, other than sports. So I did go into business school with a more open mind. Uh, I do remember while I was applying and um, uh, fortunately, because I was bought out, I worked a lot harder on studying for my GMATs and I scored better than I might not have, I might have otherwise, which allowed me to apply to some top schools. And I thought between decent grades in undergrad, where I was summa cum laude at, at Hofstra, a decent GMAT score, and you know, a unique background, maybe there'd be room for me in one of these classes. So I applied to a lot of top schools and my wife was like, why not? You know, apply to Harvard. What's the worst thing they can do? Say no? Right. And, and I think they're, you know, don't pigeonhole yourself into thinking that it's for someone else. There's no reason that um, any one of us can't accomplish what we set our mind to. Right. And, and that could be in any vocation or whatever a player decides to do, you know, whether it's the education route or, you know, becoming a firefighter or whatever they want to do, you know. And so uh, a great message there. Um, so you you before we jump to what you're doing now, I, I, I wanted to kind of just wrap up that education piece, you know, and and highlight, you know, your summers, there were a couple occasions, didn't you go and live in dorms and, and study um, to finish off some of your undergrad and then maybe a dorm before you went into Harvard or something. So yeah. to, to do some catch up work or something. So you know, the, 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 the dedicate. Yeah. The, the last two summer. So it'd been summer of of 97 and summer 98, I actually spent five weeks in the dorms at Hofstra. Um, my family, I was in Anaheim, so they stayed out West and you know I did that for the five weeks. And then when I was in Boston playing, I would get up at what was 4 a.m. on Monday and get home Thursday nights and, and did that because I had to be on campus to finish those last classes. While you were playing or in the summer? This was in the off season, so this was right. June, July, August. Right. So the incredible amount of time invested, you know, during your career in the summers while working out and school, you know, eventually ends up paying off for a player post career because you have a lot of years to live post career, you know, where you have to, um, you'll probably want to be a productive member of society, and so again use that time wisely um so take us through you 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 um go to business school and then you graduate you had uh, a couple uh interim stops along the way um one at goldman sachs one at first marblehead and then you end up at wellington Man management tell us a little bit about what you do now what your uh, day is like and um what 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 Ken Baumgartner's up to. Sure. So I think I was 40 years old when I, I joined Wellington and you know, I'd taken a step back and, you know, what do I want to do for the rest of my life? Do I want to go back to sports? We had moved back from Los Angeles. We had determined Boston was going to be home, although none of us were originally from there. It's just a great place to raise the kids. So we had unwound two years in Los Angeles that um, in retrospect, we may not have done when we left Boston after business school. Um, you know, Wellington is a trillion dollar asset manager. Most people have probably never heard of Boston based with global offices. I'm in my 15th year there and it's been a great fit professionally and culturally. 
you know, my role is a blend of business management, portfolio analytics and portfolio representation to institutional clients, the family offices, university endowments, corporate pensions. So the really bright people I get to work with and bright people on, on the client side that it's a non-investment role and that suits me just fine because I think it would be, you know, that is a tough job living with wins and losses every single day for others to see. Uh, even more so than an athlete, I would think. Uh, but I had to recreate myself in an industry after giving everyone else a decade head start. And, you know, it's not easy to do. And I quickly realized that there's no free lunch. And, you know, maybe some star players, because of uh, the positive emotion they've created with their organization, may remain. Uh, in and have endorsement income and you know maybe life can be easier but for the majority of us your star fades quickly and in some respects the fact that I played pro sports in my new career I almost thought of as a liability because well how will we take this person serious if we thought he was just some athlete as a as, you know a speaking head so I I worked hard to I guess distance myself from my time in sports and just to learn a, a new craft and you know, eventually I caught up to those peers who I was 10 years behind and, you know, I'm quite comfortable with kind of where I am today in the industry. Right. Good for you. Um, so, you know, as, as we wrap up this segment, you know, I, I, I should tell the listeners that I, um, went, you know, approached you about doing this podcast and kind of thought, okay, wouldn't it be great for, you know, Ken Baumgartner, who, um, you know, played 14 years in the NHL, has been a 15-year post, um, post now, is a 15 pro, and then there was two years of, of business school, 15 more years of, or maybe 20 years of working in the, in the um, business field to, you know, shed some advice, give the listeners some you know, advice on what you learned about playing and post-career and, you know, lay it out for us. Yeah. And, and put in perspective, right. This month will be 25 years since I got traded from the Maple Leafs to the Ducks. Okay. To show you how much time has. Right. And so wow. I did think about this and, and we did talk about some of these and yep. how to provide kind of any advice having been through this is, you know, your post-career transition starts today. Don't wait till it's over because there's so much you can do to prepare. I always thought the secret of success in life is to be ready for the opportunity when it comes. You know, I played 700 games. I bet I spent 500 of those between periods riding the stationary bike. So my pulse wasn't 50 if I got called on the next period because I hadn't played in an hour, right? So there are things you can do, little things along the way to just increase the odds of success when your chance comes. Um, first and foremost, we touched on this, time will pass quickly, use it wisely. It's too easy to go with the flow, play cards, video games on the plane, watch movies, you know, manage your time, be curious, have a passion outside of hockey and, and always be learning. And you'd be surprised where that can take you. And I can't emphasize that enough for junior kids playing in junior. You know, whether, you know, it's getting ready to go to school or pick a vocation if you're not going to play pro hockey and current players who are in the National League, the American League, the East Coast in Europe to be thinking about, you know, what they like to do and educating themselves. Yeah. Uh, second, I would say the same sacrifices you make while playing determination, goal setting, teamwork, accountability are all applicable outside of sports. You know, if not for those experiences, I would have struggled to get through HBS or when I was trying to get my CFA designation, when I started Wellington, which is a series of three, uh, 300 hour plus study events, uh, much like, you know, your, your bar exams, I would say the closest thing for finance, you know, there are few if any shortcuts in life and as soon as you stop thinking that someone owes you something because you were once a pro athlete the quicker you will find your path and, and isn't it isn't it true though that the athlete who's playing at any level is somewhat ahead in terms of the discipline 
the you know the the schedule i mean they pour so much into their regular routines that they should be prepared to do that outside of hockey and i would imagine employers are looking for people like that and so that they would hit the ground running to some degree yeah i would i would agree with that and i think just showing a a path work of discipline and accountability i got hired at wellington less because of HGS and Goldman Sachs, more because the person who hired me said, anyone who's going to spend 14 years on their undergrad, I want them on my team. Right. Is that, yeah. that type of dedication For sure. that we need on our side? Right. Um, we talked about network. Again, it's strongest when you're playing. You know, get involved, meet people outside of hockey. This naturally happens when you have kids. I think getting to know some of the other parents was a way for me uh, to branch out. But your point, Ian, even if you're financially secure when you leave the game, you still have half your life ahead of you. So find interesting things to fill that with. So as we wrap up, um, well, quick question. Do you have any, uh, do you miss the game? Do you still stay and watch a little Bruin hockey from time to time or you know, check back on your Leafs or the Islanders or whatnot? Uh, I am still a fan of the game. I watched the Bees last night, big comeback against uh, the Capitals. Uh, I don't get to as many games as I used to. I had a daughter who played for five years, so I was the dad with the coach with the skates in the trunk who ended up coaching and thoroughly enjoyed that. Right. Uh, never played a lot myself. Haven't had the skates on in five years and and never really enjoyed kind of the beer league alumni. Um, always found it a little more dangerous to, to get hurt uh, playing that than playing professional. Well, the word the word on the street is that the bomber can um, snowboard pretty good, uh, pretty snow- well. Yeah, well, that was that was the one thing I picked up. Snowboarding and, and golf are sort of the two passions, not nearly as competitive as, as when I played. But, um, you know, I keep tabs on the game, always interested in the business side. And, you know, I think Good. all of us look forward to putting fans back in the seats because it's a different game without them. For sure. And so the last segment of uh, this podcast, the Hockey News Storytellers, I call, you know, The Chase. Um, it's kind of a fun time to ask, uh, you know, um, the participants, guests, you know, what do you chase? You know, first, let me ask you, you, you look like a pretty, you know, fit guy, um, former player, you know, fit um, businessman. What's your chase? Will you chase on a, if diet is not an issue? Is there a Boston sub place, pizza place or burger place that you will go to well i will say the odd yoga class and some peloton allow me to have the odd burger or pizza uh for pizza i would go with mistral not really a pizza joint but delicious uh thin crust pizza and my favorite burgers point burger space is the bristol lounge okay with views of the park okay nice okay and so are you a dunkin donut guy in Boston, I think it's synonymous with the with Boston, Dunkin' Donuts and Dunkin' Coffee and Dunkin' Everything or a Starbucks guy. I'll, I'll answer that uh, bowl. Uh, I've had an affinity of iced coffee for a few years here, even in the winter. Uh, there it is the Starbucks mild blend buy in the grocery store. And in COVID times, I've been known to, to hoard it. Uh, but in normal times, if I need a hot coffee, that tends to be Duncan. Oh, and, and, what, store for. and what do you put in that Duncan? A uh, couple uh, Splenda and some milk. So no double-double. No, I don't do the double-double. Yeah. <laughs> well, Kenny, it was great. Um, I think every future hockey player, um, future NHL player or current NHL player, um, I believe any aspiring business person should listen to your lessons and what you did and hopefully will, you know, become motivated by it. Uh, Thank you for your time today on the Hockey News Storytellers. It was great catching up and congratulations on your playing career, your post-playing career, and best of luck in the future. Well, thanks, Ian. Always great to catch up and look forward to seeing you soon.